Hello, everybody, and welcome to Between Two Servers. This is the show where we talk about multiplayer game development and netcode. With me today, I have Iggy King. Welcome to the show, Iggy. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. Great to be here. So Iggy has a super long career, uh, a lot of work on sports games and RTS games, uh, experience at Central Tech Team at EA, worked a bunch on FIFA, and uh, now Blackbird Interactive working on RTS games. So there's a lot for us to talk about today. Um, why don't we talk about how you first got into games? Yeah, sure. I guess it, uh, it first started in the 80s. I got a Commodore 64 when I was in grade 11. Um, prior to that, I'd been reading books. And one of the dad got me this set of books because there was no internet then. So, you know, you read books. That's how you found stuff out. Um, there was a tic-tac-toe game that couldn't be beaten in 10 lines of basic. And I thought that was amazing. Um, so I started writing my own games. I, I, I wrote that too in basic, but I was like <laughs> 10 years after you. Right. So. <laughs> I, I wrote unbeatable tic-tac-toe, but I did it like the way I play tic-tac-toe. So it, it was like pages and pages of code. Yeah. Um, but, uh, oh, so you actually did the whole decision tree from everything and you coded it out? That's I probably totally, like special case did all. It's like, okay, yeah. if this happens, then- That is exactly what I did too. <laughs> I, I literally yeah. did the whole decision tree from every starting point and coded mm -hmm. it with like if else's and boom. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I made a few other games. I did like a Space Invaders ripoff and um, a driving game and started getting into assembly programming on the Commodore 64 and using sprites and built my own sprite editor. So I was doing like tool development in uh, grade 12, I guess it was at that point. Um, and so we're talking like eight, we're talking like 80s now? Yeah, this was like 84, 85. Cool. Um, and then, you know, that, that fired me up about computer science. So I went and studied that at university. Uh, went on and did a master's degree. That's what brought me out to the West Coast. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, the my first job out of school was doing um, embedded DSP development at a uh, a local hardware company that had a small software division. Very very cool. So from that, you got into EA on the Central Tools Group, working on some really old school consoles. Tell me about those. Yeah, so that was 1995. I saw an ad in the Vancouver Sun for a, a tools programmer at, at Electronic Arts. And I was like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing ads for them in magazines, you know, back in the day. So kind of on a lark, I sent in my resume and got an interview and got a job offer. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I guess we're doing this. Let's do it. That's um, right. Yeah, That's so, so cool. Super fun. And, and the, the central tech team, they had a a library of low level like file IO, sprite rendering, um, math library, stuff like that, that needed to be ported onto each new platform as it came along. So they they put me, uh, I think the very first thing I worked on was getting those libraries up and running on the Sega Saturn. Um, then I moved on to doing a, they had a custom video codec they built um, that EA patented and I mm -hmm. did the implementation for the 3DO, um, okay. which was kind of fun because the, the video player was based on 8-bit palleted uh, videos, but the, the 3DO, I don't know if anyone remembers, had a really weird coded eight color system where you got, Ooh, I think it was eight, eight shades each of 32 colors. So, oh, also, it's almost palette. It, it's, it's it's like it's a palette. Palleted, you don't, you don't get choices. Yeah, yeah. So, so was it? So it really was like was it eight gradations for how many? Thirty two. Thirty two. Yeah. So it was eight bit, but it, but you didn't really yeah. have. Oh, but okay. It, but it also meant that when I was, you know, the stream had been encoded on a PC with no notion. Yeah. It was just reducing to two hundred fifty six colors, and when I matched those onto the the best fit of this gradated palette, it looked kind yeah. of terrible. Yeah. So what I ended up doing instead was doing just software paletting to a to a 16-bit output 
And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we managed to get that working. So uh, that this was is sort of like all the, I mean, to sort of set the scene, this is back in the era of the Babelizer and uh, uh, not, not everybody having 32 bit color and before, before 3D. 3D before 3D, really... before 3D effects, before yeah. Power VR, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, none it, of the consoles was, were doing 3D yet. It was sprites and it was uh, palleted color, yeah. and and the challenge was getting uh, getting authored 2D content into a limited color range, and there were tools that were optimizing and dithering and so on, and and for video, you had to do a similar thing on the 3DO. Yeah, so yeah. that's exactly. crazy. So. Saturn and 3D, I didn't go very far, but it must have been quite interesting to work yeah, with. Yeah, I, back in the I day. hope it wasn't my fault, but uh, I, I remember <laughs> on the Saturn, I. Um, you killed the Miggy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, you know, our, our studio, uh, EA Burnaby, did a whole lot of sports games. So it was all about, you know, FIFA soccer, baseball game, basketball. Um, and so the Central Tech team worked a lot with the, on the sports titles. Um, I did also get a credit on Warcraft 2 for the Sega Saturn. That was fun. Mm -hmm. I was like the, the EA liaison with the third-party developer. Oh, oh um, so okay. Neat, neat to see that game coming together. And, you know, years later, realized just how big Warcraft had been back in the day. I didn't really know what I'd been part of at the time. But uh, That's amazing. Yeah. So, so you were initially on the Central Tech Group, and then you got pulled to the FIFA Team. Yeah, I got pulled Tell into FIFA. That. So um, I was working on the Nintendo 64, and FIFA was going to be... The first EA title, to, or at least for the first for the EA Canada studio to come out on the N64. Um, so again, I was porting to low-level libraries, but also getting into the, you know, how the fixed function pipeline for graphics worked on the mm -hmm. uh, on the N64, and mm -hmm. helping take advantage of that, and uh, liaising very closely with the FIFA team because they were kind of like the first candidate. I'd I'd make a change to the library, and you know, with days later they'd be using it. So I was working was, very, was very closely. Was FIFA as with huge? Was it as huge back then as it is now? Uh, it, it was a massive project. It was probably the biggest team at EA Canada, but nothing like mm -hmm. the, you know, the small industry it is now. I mean, you, you look at the, you know, I don't, you saw, probably saw the news this week about the FIFA potentially changing their name because the, mm -hmm. they couldn't come to a licensing agreement with the, uh, the FIFA governing body, the, the Federation Internationale de Football Association or whatever mm -hmm. it's called. Um, I feel like FIFA should be paying EA because I think all the name recognition of FIFA is from the video game, not not from the governing body. But uh, anyway, a billion dollars for that license and all you get is four letters seems like a, wow. a hefty price to pay. So I'm not surprised they're they're stepping away from that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, back in the day, uh, you know, 1996 or seven, whenever this was, the the FIFA team at EA was probably. 80-ish people doing, you know, building a game every year for three mm -hmm. to five platforms, depending on the year and where we were in the console cycle. That's insane. I mean, that's even hard today doing yep. it in a year. And back then, I mean, this was real hardcore low-level programming on these consoles. This was basically like, uh, congratulations, you're running a device driver. Yeah, pretty much. Like you're, you're learning the assembly language, you're learning you know, exactly the cache architecture on this machine and how mm -hmm. to, how to mm -hmm. optimize for it. Um, you're dealing with file AO on the N64. We didn't really have a file system. So we, we wrote the file system against cartridge memory instead, just to allow a bunch of other code to work more cleanly. Yep. Um, and then independently, we wrote a, uh, like a, a motion playback system that would pull animations off the cartridge, but then have a little buffer of them in memory so the one you know the run mm -hmm. cycle and the things that were happening a lot would be right there and available and you'd only pay the cartridge uh hit when you when necessary did they have like a shared code base 
was when I when I did console work, I, I was I would did did some work at Pandemic, and it was sort of almost like a PC based studio that also happened to do consoles. Then I got to work at Sony at Sony Santa Monica, and these were really hardcore people like you. I mean, they they'd been there on PS One and PS Two, and I mean, this is real shit, right? Like, it's not a PC, right? It, it, it's an extremely low level thing and very bare bones. What I'm really curious about is back in the day, what was the N64 just radically completely different to the Saturn to the 3DO in terms of how you would program? Or, or was it that you could have a reasonably similar shared code base and kind of have drivers or styling? How, how did it work when you had such divergent architectures? Yeah, that, that was where this uh, this low-level library I was referring to would come in. So that would give kind right. of a, yeah. a foundational layer that the game teams could then write against. And so they would try to write as much shared code as possible. Um, in the case of FIFA, they were split up into a number of sub-teams. So there was the, the uh, gameplay team and all the gameplay was built using shared code. That would just be written once. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The UI team might have to do stuff that was platform specific, depending on the UI framework in use. Um, networking mm -hmm. would be generally platform specific at the low levels. And then, mm -hmm, uh, you mm -hmm, know, try and mm -hmm. have a, a higher level abstraction that was. And, that and was of course, no platform. cross play back in the, the late 90s. Yeah, although ironically, I think we could have because we were we were uh, running the the same simulation code and mm -hmm. we used fixed point math and we we just right. treated the, the players were treated as remote joysticks. So mm -hmm. essentially, it was uh, you know the same sim running everywhere, and um, you know I guess there'd be issues around like versioning and exactly which build went out on what platform. But technically, at least it it should have been possible to do cross play. But nobody was considering that back in those days. You know. Very cool. Uh, network play was usually something you did with your friends in their house or over, you know, like a like a land situation. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, yeah. so did did FIFA actually start there in the land? Is that is that the origination of the FIFA multiplayer? Uh, yeah, I believe so. Yep, yep, mm. yeah. So land play would have been the the beginnings of it. I think um, I think we first did internet play while I was on the team, but I can't remember mm -hmm. what year that would have been. Um, that wasn't really my my domain at that point. Yeah. Um, and the, the way they I did feel it. so sorry for the person who did that at that time. <laughs> yeah. And show it was always he'd be, you know, anytime there was a determinism bug or anything like that, he'd be the one who had to like dig into the bottom of it, figure out what was going on, and then communicate back to the person who'd, you know, forgotten to initialize a variable or messed yeah. up the random number generator or whatever, whatever had gone wrong. So so let's so let's talk a little bit about determinism and lockstep. So so I, I'm just gonna go out on a limb. I've I've never worked on a sports game. Um, I don't. I don't know how they're networked. I'm going to assume that they're probably deterministic lockstep based on what you're saying. Um, were they were they peer to peer back then? Just what's what's the general kind of best practice that you've seen for the for the sports games? Yeah, I mean the the way we we did it was definitely peer to peer lockstep. Um, we would again, it was just gathering remote inputs. So if mm -hmm. I'm playing against you. Uh, to my game, you just look like a remote a remote controller, and same mm -hmm. thing in the other direction. Uh, we would gather up the button inputs and the the you know all the directional inputs, actually them up, send them over. Um, to be honest, like since being at Blackbird, we've followed that pattern for real time strategy games. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't realize when I was working on FIFA that it's kind of an RTS game in disguise. So you know it was helpful. So when I had that realization. It was like, oh, all that stuff that. Ben used to do, I should rack my brain and remember how it works and then read up on that stuff and we can apply that here. That's awesome. Um, what I'm not sure of is like we we go to great lengths to try and hide network latency and make sure that mm. you know we're not pausing the game, waiting for the packets to come in. So we're 
we're scheduling those packets to be consumed a couple of sim ticks later than we send them so that those two ticks can be used to ah, latency to happen. So, so it's the classic thing, like you might you might locally play, like the classic RTS thing is like you click and then the local UI goes like bloop and goes like, and the guy goes rush, rush, and he might be, he might play like a cosmetic animation on my way, sir. But like but he he's not actually going to move. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so he, okay. he might not move for a few hundred milliseconds, which okay. usually in an RTS is okay because you're, yeah. you know, the feeling you have as a player is that you're telling your units what to do. You you, you okay. don't identify with the unit. So in a so sports in, game, is it the same? In a sports game, I feel like that doesn't work quite right because you obviously okay. you want very responsive control to the to the player, mm -hmm. um, and so you would want, you know, the moment I I push left, I want my player to start moving left. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. Uh, I honestly don't know at the time if we just got around that by the fact that it's you're on a land, so there's very little latency, yeah. and we're running the sim fast enough that the reaction time is okay. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I kind of want to go back and go back in time and have former me talk to our network guys and learn more about it. But uh, that's really that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'd hazard a guess if the gameplay simulation wasn't particularly CPU bound, and and I'll guess that it probably wasn't. Although on some of the consoles, maybe it was. Mm -hmm. um, if it wasn't particularly CPU bound, it might have been that they did an early version of what's known in the industry as GGPO or Good Game Peace Out, which is mm -hmm. the sort of rollback that's used. Yeah, I don't with think rollback is used because, uh, oh, like, I, okay. I know we were we were storing replays as command stream sequences, but uh, mm -hmm. we weren't we weren't able to scrub forward and back. Um, so it, I don't I don't think we had a robust like state per tick oh, management I mean, if system. You, I, I, you're making a game every year. I would be stunned if you could even get the game out, let alone re-architect for a rollback-based system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I also know that like the the uh, the gameplay team didn't generally have to worry about networking. They just consumed inputs and yeah. ran animations and yeah. things. So yeah, I feel that's, like the networking would have been a lot more invasive. Yeah, the, 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 the lovely thing about the deterministic lockstep is that, um, you, you know, like if you're deterministic, uh, down to a bit level, down to a checksum of the the game memory state at the end of a frame, or even partial frame points when you're binary searching to debug what went wrong. Um, the game code, as long as it's deterministic, just networks. It's yep. beautiful. Yeah, just play by the rules, and everything becomes pretty simple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. So after this, for a while, you went on to become tech director at uh, Central Tools Group, and I think. Did you spend a bit of time working with the art pipeline there? What, what was, yeah, what so was the of, central I, tech I, transition? I migrated through a group called Sports Core. So we were looking at, mm -hmm. you know, we're making all these stadium-based sports games. Why aren't we sharing more high-level stuff? Oh, yeah. um, and that we tried a bunch of things, some of which worked, some of which didn't. Um, the best thing that came out of that was a uh, like a human character animation system suited to the needs of sports games with, mm -hmm. you know, rich behavior trees and... and um, basically a, a lot of foundation for building gameplay, not just, you know, moving a character. So it was a, a lot more sophisticated than, than like an FPS first person controller or whatever. Um, so that, that was one thing that came out of that sports core initiative. I then moved on looking at, we were trying to centralize the content production process. So I started looking more at pipelines for our teams, ways to manage their content, um, ways to make sure that content for hundreds and hundreds of player likenesses, you know, mapped into the database and, and was, uh, you know, match the new roster updates and things like that. Um, looking at database technology to manage those rosters, mm -hmm. um, working with, 
what know, what what year was this roughly like like 2010? Uh, this would have been so my my last full time year on FIFA was the FIFA 2003 iterations, which would have mm-hmm. been done in 2002. Yep. Um, so then this was 2003 through to 2010 was when I I finished my mm-hmm. time at EA. Um, and yeah, we we did a lot of time building building our tools, uh, streamlining content pipelines, making it easier for central groups to standardize on best practices and deliver into multiple game clients in an effective fashion. So it was almost not exactly production management, but kind of. It's a very interesting area, particularly in that timeframe, because that was the timeframe of the transition from the the PS2 and the Xbox gen to the PS3 and and the Xbox, uh, Xbox One. And man, content just exploded. Mm-hmm. Like the the size of content being processed, the baking, um, and uh, they, these consoles at that point were next gen to us at that time working on them. But even though they were much more powerful than previous ones, the expectation was is that the the step up in production quality and assets and art was really high, and it became very difficult for at least teams that I was working with to manage that whole process and pipeline. So I can certainly understand EA's position of trying to make that simpler across multiple sports studios. Yeah, exactly. And, and yeah. Like the, the data, the content got a lot bigger. There was a yeah. lot more of it. Um, you know, it wasn't just put a material on a model. Now you needed like multiple layers of materials and, and somebody was writing a shader and the artists need to mm-hmm. understand how mm-hmm. that shader became their material. And then you're hooking up all the textures and, you know, figuring out in FIFA's case, you know, what's a, what's a common texture, what's based on skin tone, what's based unique to the player, what comes from mm-hmm. their team. Uh, like there's a whole bunch of things that come together to assemble a character in FIFA um, and similar issues on the on the other titles as well. Very cool. So you, you since left EA and uh, you find yourself at Blackbird Interactive now uh, as technical director, you shipped uh, Homeworld Deserts of Karak which unlike people who like me remember the original Homeworld being a space game, it's actually a, a ground-based RTS. So was this the first real RTS you worked on? Uh, yeah, I mean, other than than being remotely involved in, in Warcraft 2 back in the day, this oh, was course, def- yeah. definitely my first real RTS experience. Yeah. Um, so so what, what was it like? And did you get involved with the networking at this point? Uh, yeah, so it was, it was a super fun project. We um, Blackbird started in 2010. Originally, mm-hmm. we... We were looking at Zynga making, you know, bags of money on Facebook with yeah. games that we thought didn't look that good and weren't that interesting. We thought we could do way better. Kind of feels um, like blockchain right now, although I don't know if blockchain <laughs> ends the same way as. Yeah, yeah, personally. we'll see. Um, and yeah, the like we we wanted to do high quality 3D on the web, um, mm-hmm. and we we chose Unity because they had a Unity plugin that would would do quite good graphics in a in a web context. Um, in the end, Facebook gaming went away before we really figured out what the heck we mm-hmm. were doing. Um, and in by the, the time you of, see someone succeeding with it, it's already, <laughs> yeah, I guess we should, I, I think, I think, but yeah. So our, our, our idea was to make a, a, um, desert planet game where you're driving massive vehicles over the surface of the planet. You're interacting in a map level, dropping down into 3d on the surface of the planet. You're getting little pop-up videos with Intel moments. Um, our CEO, Rob Cunningham, is uh, super excitable and persuasive and convinced me it was going to be mostly an art problem and I just needed to come and assemble a few key pieces of tech. And I'm like, oh, that sounds awesome. It's new. It's Siren fun. song. It's, it's going to be easy. Uh, but yeah, I think we we sort of had, it was like, Five you know, years new, later. new tech, new game genre, new business idea, new team. Like there were so yeah. many things new that we we naively assumed we could solve all the problems and didn't quite work out that way. Uh, anyway, we, we ended up... Um, 
getting in discussions with Gearbox, who bought uh -huh. the rights to the Homeworld IP. Uh, Rob Cunningham was art director on the original Homeworld titles at Relic, uh, where mm -hmm. he was a co-founder. Um, and so Gearbox came to us looking for like art assets and audio that was, uh, you know, on tape in a cardboard box in Rob's attic and things like that. So we were <laughs> doing all this forensic investigation of how to help them revive Homeworld. Um, and then we kind of got talking about the this project we were working on, which at the time was called just hardware, but it was this, you know, desert planet, big vehicles thing that mm -hmm. always sort of could have been in the homeworld universe if you squinted a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so we we decided to work with Gearbox and turn this into a, a prequel to cool. the homeworld. So, you know, the, the story of homeworld comes about after the, the planet of Karak people, people disappears just in flame and everyone's trying to get back to the, the homeworld. This is, um, this is something that's so important for people watching, especially at the beginning of your career. It's not always a straight line from starting working on a game to shipping it yeah for sure like, like we this, we kept this is a journey yeah. every game made is a miracle <laughs> it is yeah i mean they're yeah. games are so difficult and that's part of what makes it exciting and you're mm -hmm. you're working with such a diverse group of people you're solving mm -hmm. hardware problems you're trying to squeeze out performance you've got to make it fun which is you know it's it's so much different than just developing application software or, or working on a database or whatever. Can I can I can I can I let out a, like a, a secret from about oh, console development shipping games? So, uh, some of the older school senior, you know, I was a senior lead at at, at, at uh, on the God of War team, helping helping network the God of War engine. And, but some of these guys have been around for ages. They go to War One, Two, Three, whatever, and they were old, salty console guys. <laughs> and and uh, so one of them, like I think we were coming up at the end of I don't remember if it was God of War Three or God of War Ascension. And the guy just it's it's like we're really really tight. We're not sure we can make the memory, and it, so he just goes into his code, and he goes and edits the static. One meg that he'd reserved he's got a already. Me megabyte tucked away. He's going to give you yeah. half of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that happened yeah. once on FIFA too. I forget which platform. Yeah, it, it's a, it's an old console trick, mm -hmm. right? The 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 guy the 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 old console guys always hold on to a little bit of memory because they know that the art or the level or or something deserving, obviously, mm -hmm. is going to need it, and you're just not going to have room. Mm -hmm. And this is going to be like right before you go gold, right? Yep. Yeah. So pretty cool. Well, yeah. so Homeworld Deserts of Crack, you ship that. Um, yeah, so that, that, I mean, you were asking about the networking and that. So yeah, I, tell, I, tell me about I, it. I didn't implement it, but I was involved in it. I was mm -hmm. heavily involved in setting up the, the sort of peer-to-peer -peer architecture and the gameplay mm -hmm. side of how we were going to receive inputs and pass commands around and things like that. We, we didn't just network the inputs. We basically had user input coming in and turning into selection commands and move orders. And that oh, so that's what got transported like a, the network. Like a command, like like the the post translation of input into commands was the networked primitive. Yeah, correct. Cool. Yep. Okay. And then those those primitives would get distributed over the network, queued up, and each one would have been stamped for execution at a certain sim tick. So mm -hmm. uh, we were running things like I think we default to two ticks in the future, which mm -hmm. actually mm -hmm. in the end the uh, optimization was a big challenge, and our our simulation was fairly heavy. We did a last minute optimization of dropping the tick rate from 10 hertz to 8 hertz, which seems right. rightfully yeah. slow, but actually worked okay for an RTS so, game. So one, one thing that everyone needs to know is that RTS games often render at a different rate to the internal tick simulation. So Yeah, and so we're, we're rendering at 30 to 60 frames a second, you know, assuming we can. 
Um, but then the sim has to run at a very precise rate and every frame needs to execute because the state of each frame is dependent on the state of all the previous frames. That's where mm -hmm. the determinism comes in. Yeah. So, you know, it's essential that as each new command comes in, that command is going to get executed for all eight players in the match or whoever's playing. It has to produce the exact bit equivalent results for every player. Um, and so, you know, we need to make sure that we're, they're all executing on the same tick so that we're getting the same inputs and therefore are able to generate the same outputs. Got it. Got it. So what happens if one of the eight players um, can't send packets to all the other players for a second? Yeah. Not so saying, the, not saying they're using a lag switch, but maybe they are. Right. And uh, so the, the issue there is that, you know, you're, you've scheduled your, you've generated a command packet, you've thrown it out onto the network stack. You mm -hmm. need everyone else's to come back two ticks later, which is uh, two eighths mm -hmm. of a second. You know, you've got 250 milliseconds and you're hoping that's enough time for everybody to, you know, share their, their oh, so results. It, so it really looks like, uh, it looks like you throw it out to everybody and then everybody throws it back to you. And you're like, now I have everybody's commands for the yep. time I'm about to execute. Yep. And that's, and it's then, like a loop out and come back. Exactly. Okay. And so where, it. where it can go wrong is if, uh, you know, if one, one player takes, like you said, a second to send their results, then everyone's sitting mm -hmm. there like, oh, I don't have your results. I can't run my tick yet. So um, did you actually pause at that point? Yeah, we would, we would pause briefly. And what we would do is pause and wait and then uh, update the, the number of ticks in the future that we were scheduling for. So, mm -hmm. you know, if we initially default to two ticks, if we miss that deadline a couple of times, we'll try three and see if that keeps us going. If not, we'll try four. And so you get okay. this trade-off so, where you've got- So this is almost like a play-out delay jitter buffer for that particular player, assuming good faith. Yeah, kind it's of. kind of so like, maybe they're a little bit early and late and their connection sucks. Let's just yeah. move them a little further into the future than normal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, unfortunately okay. you're having to wait for, for, you're delaying, you're slowing down the game for that, but mm -hmm. you're not mm -hmm. You're not slowing down the frame rate. And if you've, yeah. you know, worst case, if you were waiting, you know, let's go extreme and say you were waiting 20 ticks for those packets, that gives you two seconds for all the networking, which should be plenty, yeah. even if you're networking between, is it, you know, Is Brazil it just that player who has the two second no, delay? No, then everyone's gonna, everyone's gonna get uh, delayed. So they're gonna okay. issue a move order, they're going yeah, to select units, yeah. they're going to click the map, and it's going to take two seconds for the units yeah. to start moving, Got it. which would be pretty bad. But if it's in the, you know, even 200 to six or 700 milliseconds is mm -hmm. not not terrible for an RTS game. And presumably, you, good. you know, you know, you're playing against someone in another continent. You're like, yeah, okay, it's cool. It's working, whatever. Yeah. Um, so so when we when we move past the internet sucking, which, you know, definitely in that time mm -hmm. frame it did. And, and even today, you can't really rely on timely delivery, although it's statistically probably a lot better. Yep. Um, there is a thing called a lag switch where people just can be dicks. And I actually had to buy one surreptitiously from a great website when I was working on God of War because we we got we couldn't pass our submission because it was like if if one person lag switches like the rest of the you know the rest mm -hmm. of the, it was something like um, uh, if someone lag switches your their attack was unblockable or something like that. Mm -hmm. right? and, and of course it all goes back to the network model that we were using, but. Um, in this case, I think I've got a solution that I can share with you. I think that StarCraft or StarCraft II, what they did is they had an input server or a command server that would take the process commands. So instead of, instead of going out peer-to-peer -peer and throwing back, everybody would go out to the input server and the input server would be able to arbitrate. Mm -hmm. Well, this guy's too late. Your commands are toast, my friend. Mm -hmm. Right? So, so instead of having to wait all the time, it could also invalidate commands. And you really wouldn't want to be the person who had an invalidation of commands. 
because then mm. you would click and think that you could do something and then you wouldn't be allowed to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You would lose your input effectively, but it's yeah, not we, something you can really do pure peer to peer. Yeah. We, we speculated about doing that and we were, um, that game came out on steam. And so we were using uh, steam sockets, which actually mm-hmm. do peer to peer if they can, or valve yeah, 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 relay the, server. The tunneling. You need yeah. It. yeah. 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 That's so good. We, we always thought about doing our own relay server. And like you say, having some additional validation in there. Yeah. Um, we sort of thought of it as like the, the referee server as opposed to the yep. game server. Um, yeah, because yeah, we... it's really it's really not running the simulation. It's really just at the simplest level, just looking at the commands timestamp coming in and going like, you're too late. You don't mm-hmm. get to run that command. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, I, I can actually also share that I know another game um, based on, uh, based on uh, network dumps that I've done and looked at and investigated that I'm fairly confident that Clash of Clans has that same deterministic thing running, but I, I, the deterministic server that's normally just a referee server, it's running a headless version of the game. Mm-hmm. And that headless version of the game is the thing that drives meta. So it mm, drives right. like you got points, you got XP, you won this. Mm-hmm. So, so that way you don't have to trust the clients kind of like, I won. Yep. Right. Yep. So um, there's a whole amount of gradation in this network model for like, yep. For sure. Are you peer-to-peer or fully client-server or somewhere in between? Yeah. Right? It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the uh, the deterministic model comes into play too in other, you were mentioning rollback. So Overwatch mm. uses deterministic simulation advance with rollback in the event of discrepancy on the, on the inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, and the determinism allows them to get, basically they use determinism as their predictor. So you're not just extrapolating, you're actually running the same logic the server would run. Yeah. So what's, your prediction is perfect as long as the inputs are, are you've guessed correctly. What's what's particularly interesting is is that the best of breed first person shooters that aren't necessarily bit level deterministic, like Call of Duty, Apex Legends, Titanfall, Counter Strike, these games do a very similar rollback, but in a in a different non deterministic way. Um, it, it's almost like there's a there's a continuum between the deterministic lockstep mo- mode and the GGPO style rollback for fighting games and so on. Uh, and, and maybe Overwatch is somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And then there is a really not deterministic set of games that still do the same rollback called client-side prediction. So it, it's so funny when I, when I teach programmers about game networking, it's like every answer, they ask a question like, well, what's the, be- what's the best way to do this? Or should I be deterministic or not? The, answer, the honest answer is always, it kind of depends. Mm-hmm. It's just such a complicated blend, a continuum between different approaches. There's no hard line between two different things. They all yep. kind of blur together. Yeah, for sure. Cool. Uh, so I've got a really interesting question for you, and, and I guess this is um, this is one to end the show on, I think. Bandwidth is no longer as limited as it used to be. What do you think the future of RTS games is in a world where bandwidth is, is plentiful? Yeah, it's a good question. I think bandwidth has become way more plentiful and latency in some ways has gotten worse in some cases. So yeah. um, I have, you know, on Desert to Karak, I tried to do some like back of the envelope modeling of, you know, how much data did we actually have to pass around if, mm-hmm. we, if we tried to go full client server. Um, and I still concluded that it, it seemed like too much for the bandwidth of the time. Yeah. Um, are we getting there now? Probably. I mean, uh, you look at, you know, if you could, if I can stream Netflix in 4k, then surely yeah. there's enough data to stream there to, to I, manage the state of an RTS game. We, we need to really start thinking as game devs, like 
five or 10 years from now, maybe let's, let's say 10, everyone's going to have a gigabit. Everyone's mm-hmm. going to have a gigabit, gigabit per second, not gigabyte, gigabits per second. And if you work out how much you can actually send up and down in the gigabit, mm-hmm. that's, that's a lot, right? Yeah. Even if you are sending packets 60 times a second, and some people might have three, four, five, 10 gigabits. Mm-hmm. So uh, Although, you're about uh, to enter think- a very interesting world. I don't know how much you know about the details of planetary annihilation, but I, I believe I, they, I did hear they, they did it. They tried to do something like that, but yeah. I, I think they had some challenges where they they were sharing state that wasn't just moment to moment state, but it was like mm-hmm. curves of where things were going to be moving in the yeah. future. With yeah. the idea that then the client could just keep following along the curve and they yeah. get to the right place. Yeah. I think they had a challenge where in the in the heat of battle, those curves were updating so quickly that having a curve that went three seconds into the future doesn't help you when your unit is like under fire and changing its mind every 250 mm-hmm, milliseconds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not sure how successful that I was. I was wondering how they did that because because you're definitely right. Because if you have a ballistic trajectory or a movement along a path, mm-hmm. uh, which which you can see a classic RTS is composed, it, it is tempting to think about, well, can I, can I network the actual primitives of movement? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the, but the one thing I would say is that while you could theoretically do it, that would be a very, it would be impossible to bound the amount of bandwidth that that sends mm-hmm. and that it would go up with activity, which, 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 you know, you might have the steady state be quite reasonable. And then the classic RTS and battle would, would make everything blow up. Yep. So we, we've got cool. another game in development that uh, I believe it gets announced in June, but we're, that is client server and heavily cool. based on entity component systems approach to things. Oh, cool. So, so Mike, all... Mike Acton stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's doing, he's been Unity, doing great but, work at uh, Unity on that. I mean, yeah. So that, that whole fantastic like, idea, we're actually using yeah. uh, ENTT, which is an open source framework for, for ECS. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got quite a robust model because all the game state is in entities and their components component replication becomes the the problem to solve. And so got we've it. got good mechanisms for designating, you know, which components update on the client, which update on the server, which ones get mm-hmm. replicated, how often they need to be replicated, uh, how to replicate distant entities versus ones that are closer to the player mm-hmm. um, and good rules so that we can, we can actually put a cap on bandwidth and we know, yeah. okay, given that I've got this many megabytes per second available, mm-hmm. Which components are the ones that are priority, and I should I should circulate those. Um, it becomes a little bit like the uh, I think it's Fortnite and Unreal, where there was a yeah, it's quite it's a, quite very much like the Unreal, of, yeah, yeah, the, the, that notion of like how much do you update when, and what are the rules whereby you decide yeah. you know which what data gets I, updated. I I like to look at it like this, sort of like a priority accumulator, and you're kind of like I want to hit this kilobits per second, and then you kind of have objects or components, and you're kind of like you keep bubbling priority up for them. Mm-hmm. And then you pick the top end that fit into whatever packet you, you can send out yeah. and then flip their priority. You take their priority accumulator and you drop it. So more important objects or closer objects accumulate priority yeah. faster and get sent often in every packet. It right? becomes almost like a, a video yeah. compression problem where you're trying yeah. to preserve quality of a data stream and hit a bandwidth target. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's really nice about this is that you can hit that specific target. Um, there's a different way to do it. So, so this is how I, I've always done it in the past, especially when I was doing peer-to-peer in my, my first client server games. Then I went to Titanfall with, with Quake and uh, Counter-Strike Heritage. And, and, and uh, they're also like the same guys who worked on Call of Duty. They do it a totally different way. What they do is they go, they get a big vertical slice of the entire world. And I, I don't mean like every static building. I mean like stuff in the world, mm-hmm. right? 
And, and they just really delta compress the shit out of that relative to the last one that you received. So, so they can no longer cap it at a steady state kilobits per second, but it's actually a very efficient encoding. Mm -hmm. um, and it get, it's actually paradoxically simpler, right? Mm -hmm. Because you always have all objects at the same point in time. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the other one, you, you're, you're trading temporal kind of like sloppiness because yep. it could be like, well, it gets an update and the way that they do this is it's really, it's almost like it's gone full circle, Iggy, because what they're doing is almost like the RTS games. They have a snapshot rate of 10 or 20, and, and then they have a vertical position of all of the mm -hmm. visual quantities for an object. And, and then the they're rendering an interpolation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how Call of Duty worked. That's how that, Titanfall that, and Apex Legends works. Isn't that that also means you've got you've got full state on every client, right? So you're well, susceptible well, to memory hacks and things like that. No, well, okay. So two two things. The first one is um, it's a shallow synchronization for most objects rather than a deep one. So mm -hmm. with with the method where you have sort of like the washing machine in the Unreal way, you often have to send internal quantities like velocity or whatever because you're going to be running between updates. You have to keep updating that object. But with a snapshot, you're often you're really only sending often position and orientation, mm -hmm. or some sort of visual quantity for the object, unless it's a predicted object like a player. Mm -hmm. um, so so it really just becomes interpolating between visual positions at 10 hertz to render them at 60. Mm -hmm. And 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 there's a simplicity to that. But it but it has the other thing you mentioned, of course, mm -hmm. is that you can do a um, a PVS, you can do a relevancy system, which, which, like you mentioned, it could avoid. It could be as complex as like, don't send objects down to the client if it can't see them from a server PVS. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe Counter Strike does that for the wall, like for the reasons you mentioned, right? Um, interestingly, I can tell you that Titanfall One and Apex, to my knowledge, uh, all objects are sent down, mm -hmm. and the reason is it's just such a big world, right? That you would just go up high in the sky and see everything anyway. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, the Delta compressor, so it's the thing that I wrote, um, is the thing that takes that and just basically as long as the amount of changes from one frame to the next are relatively small, mm -hmm. it all just magically works. Right, it, right. It's, quite, it's quite a thing. So that, that, really... that, that, that's even more like a video compressor, compressor than yeah, the totally. example. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so um, isn't this amazing? So the, the more you look at these different ways of doing networking, you, you realize that often all of them are the same thing. There's a yeah, lot of... Yeah. There's a lot of similarity between how the RTS games did, you know, five, eight, 10 hertz ticks and did the rendering with the later Quake networking model before client-side prediction. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarity between the GGPO deterministic rollback used for like Street Fighter type games and client-side prediction in first-person shooters. And then you have this interesting flavor, I like to call it, between the Unreal way with the priority accumulator and the kind of quake way of the interpolating between snapshots mm -hmm. and uh, every game does all of these differently yeah yeah so we're cool. we're exploring a lot of different uh options in that space like we're you mentioned we've done rts games we're also working on quite a variety of other things so there's a action strategy game that's client server mm -hmm. that's the one i mentioned um crossfire legion goes early access in two weeks time that's that's another that's very similar Congrats. to desert, desert to Karak in in architecture yeah. um Hardspace Shipbreaker has been in early access for a while, goes full launch on PC in a couple of weeks. Uh, that that doesn't do multiplayer because we got so far down a rabbit hole of like crazy yeah. physics and things that we couldn't figure out how to synchronize it. Mm -hmm. um, but we've got some like online challenges and leaderboards and things like that. 
Um, we're doing our first turn-based game is a, a game we've got in development. Um, it's like a lightweight um, deck builder roguelite. Um, so again, that's pushing us into new architectures. So yeah, constantly new, new stuff to figure out and then trying to figure out, okay, what did we just learn on that last game and how can we like make different, <laughs> different mistakes this time? Let's, yeah, yeah. Like, okay. I, I like seeing the patterns across radically different architectures and different types mm-hmm. of games and going, huh, it's all kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Iggy, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, if someone watching wants to come work with you at Blackbird, uh, where should we send them? Yeah, blackbirdinteractive.com and uh, check out the career section. Uh, we're always looking. Awesome. We, okay. We've also, uh, as an added incentive, we've just started a four-day work week. So we're, oh, we're brilliant. Uh, working through that, which has been, I mean, been pretty just, exciting. Just quitting my job right now, I'll be right there. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Iggy, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, have a great weekend and everyone watching at home. Make sure to apply uh, and and uh, you could go work with Iggy at Blackbird and British Columbia. Thank awesome. you. Thanks, See you everybody. Bye-bye. Here's the hard truth. The internet doesn't care about your game. After all the blood, sweat and tears you put into making your game, you launch and some players get terrible network performance. What can you do about it? Build your own internet? This is why we created Network Next. Network Next is a radically new way of linking networks together. It's a new internet. One where networks compete on a neutral marketplace to carry your game's traffic. Network Next puts you, the game developer, in control of the network. We monitor every player's network performance and you choose when to accelerate them. Not only will you see better network performance for your players, you'll also have the security of knowing that if one network is congested, we switch to another in seconds. Now you control the network.